You're listening to Powerful Collective Voices, co-creating the next chapter of human evolution. This is the voice of leadership, and it's time to turn up the volume. Do you feel lost without a sound? Are you waiting to be found? Have you lost sight in all the darkness? Open your eyes, see the light. Don't give in to all that's around you. This is the time to listen inside you. The voice that whispers deep in your soul, it'll tell you the truth, what you already know. Turn up the volume, lock out the noise, turn up the volume, Welcome to the Voice of Leadership. I'm Linda Lombardo. And I'm Tom Goliath. Thanks for joining us tonight. Tonight, our guest is Jamie Caddo, creative catalyst, producer, and director behind the award-winning Global Philosophy and Music Project, One Giant Leap, nominated for two Grammys with over 300,000 albums sold. Jamie is a writer, musician, and an activist. He is a former and founding member, singer, art, and video director of the dance music supergroup, Faithless. His follow-up to One Giant Leap, What About Me?, recently won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary at Red Rock Film Festival. Jamie Caddo's manifesto is just this. We're on a mission to make self-reflection hip for just a moment, just long enough to save us. If we can all collectively acknowledge our insanity, shrug and roll our eyes at each other at how nuts it is being a human, let alone having to pretend every day that we're normal, the amount of energy we'll inherit that has been wasted on the mask will be enough to creatively solve any global crisis. A polite warning on his website reads, prolonged exposure to Jamie Caddo could blow your mind. Tom, say more about Jamie. Well, Linda, as you mentioned, Jamie's activism through his art includes his film, One Giant Leap, exploring the unity and the diversity, and the second giant leap film, What About Me? Traveling across 50 countries and five continents, partnering with countless thought leaders, such as Marianne Williamson, Deepak Chopra, Eckhart Tolle, and celebrities such as Tim Robbins, Susan Sarandon, Courtney Love, and Katie Lang. Bondage for Freedom, the documentary in which Jamie recorded None of Us Are Free with Deborah Pegler, a woman unjustly imprisoned for 20 years, is a direct message to the framed Angola Three in prison in Louisiana. And Sudan 365. A Beat for Peace features drummers from Senegal, Ghana, Rwanda, South Africa, Sudan, Japan, Mexico, Brazil, Russia, Australia, Dubai, France, Spain, and the UK, as well as the drummers from Radiohead, Elbow, Pink Floyd, The Police, and Snow Patrol, all keeping a beat which travels around the world for peace in Sudan. Jamie Cato is one of the most respected artists and activists of our time on both sides of the Atlantic. We're excited and honored to have him with us tonight. Welcome to the Voice of Leadership, Jamie. Thanks. We're honored to have you here. You know, we touched the tip of the iceberg about your work in the world in in your bio. 
And doubtless our listeners also want to know more about your work and particularly more about you. You've been quoted as saying, keeping up this mutual pretense for each other because we think if people saw the truth, if people really knew what was going on in our heads, all the crazy truth of our dark appetites and self-loathing, then we'd get rejected. But in fact, the opposite is true. It's when we dare to reveal the truth that we unwittingly give everyone else permission to do the same, to be here, present, vulnerable, and authentic. So, following that, hmm. who is Jamie Cato, really? You're going to have to ask me a bit more of a specific question than that. Oh, my gosh. So, um, tell, us, tell us a bit about you, about... Uh, you know, about growing up a bit and about um, who, you, who you are. You know, I always think that when, we, when we're kids, it's who we really are. And then things happen to us in the world, right? We get our veneer kind of plastered all over us. Yeah. So who are you really, uh, you know, from, from the very beginning? Well, I just think I'm someone who's passionate about connection, about feeling connected and intimate and all of us humans... I think that the predicament of coming into having a human life, coming and experiencing the theme park that is planet Earth, is that in order to be able to come here and have experience, in order for me to experience music or pizza or anything, there has to be me and that thing, me and pizza, me and music. In order to have any kind of actual experience, we have to come out of the oneness, whatever that is, uh, and come into a kind of duality. There's no experience unless there's me and that thing I'm experiencing. So to come to planet Earth and have this theme park of experience, we have to almost like take a pill before we get here, a forgetting pill that makes us think we're an individual. You have to experience planet Earth as a me. I'm a Jamie, you're a Linda. And although it gives us this incredible menu of experiences of different things we can, we can have on planet Earth, the other thing that comes with it is you have to feel you're an individual. And that's the seat of all loneliness, all alienation, all competitiveness, um, will they like me? All the stuff which is terrible and, and scary about being a human comes from the predicament of thinking we're an individual. You know, I'm going to die, all that stuff. Um, so whenever we encounter, certainly for me, whenever we encounter something which dissolves that lie of being an individual and we feel that connection to everything again, like when our favorite band play the opening chords of our favorite song and we all roar together in appreciation or we meet someone that really gets us, it's like, oh God, I hope they never leave us. Whenever we find anything, like when, you know, even when our, our favorite team score a touchdown or a goal, we all roar together, the country or the state watch it all together that unity here, that sudden dissolving of the individuality and that feeling of connection that we all have is where everyone wants to pour all their money and give all their resources. What we hunger for is connection. Uh, and that's really been the drive of my whole life, my whole childhood, my whole uh, artistic career, doing these workshops, uh, writing. It's really about expressing things that bring us closer together that make us not feel like these individuated, competitive, alienated, lonely, hiding people. Um, but make us feel like connected to each other. That's such oxygen is where we feel that connection. And uh, that's what really what I'm all about. Is, 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 is in, that's the meaning of intimacy for me. What I hear you, what I hear you expressing is, is the, um, the, the kind of the sacred contract of coming here, the idea of taking that pill that has us forget that we're all connected and we're all one and coming here as the individual, the sacred contract that we all have with each other too in, in many ways 
to say, I'm going to play this role in your life even though you're not aware of it, and, and I'm going to help you remember that connection. I think it was Carolyn Miss who wrote the book Sacred Contracts, and there is an awful lot about what you've just expressed in that. You know, we're in the human form, and we've forgotten our connectedness to each other, and that's what we're here to remember. I think that's a, a huge part of it, and it's, it's extraordinarily fun when you reframe the world like that. The software that we're given when we first grow up is kind of victim 101, which is like stuff happens to us and we endure it. And I was just doing nothing and being innocent. And this thing came along and did it to me. And that wasn't fair. And that's kind of how, how we were, how we were originally taught. Um, the truth is, is that when something really challenging happens to us, it usually does one of two things. Either it brings up a whole lot of judgments and things we want to fight with, which are, are always a mirror of who we are. What, what you will judge about me, if you say, oh, this Jamie guy, he's so, so arrogant, it's because you're in hatred of your own arrogance. And if Tom looks at me and goes, oh, Jamie, he's just so sort of smelly, it's because he's terrified <laughs> of anyone thinking he's smelly. You know, whatever is going to be the one thing you notice and judge in someone else is the one thing that you're not, the place you're not loving yourself. So challenging people are always a signpost to how I'm not loving myself. The second thing that challenging people and experience, unexpected experiences give me is, as we all have in our body, this huge accumulation of pain waiting to be triggered, accumulated pain from the t tears we haven't cried, from the traumas we've experienced, from the stuff that still lives in our bodies. Because we all carry this incredible amount of accumulated pain in us, when someone's mean to us or treats us unjustly or we get jealous, this volcano that erupts in our solar plexus and chest, it feels so, so painful, a whole lifetime of unexpressed pain, totally disproportionate to what somebody just did to us. You know, we've, And so if you're looking at the world in the usual way, you think, oh, that person just did that to me. But if you're looking at the world in a more benevolent, trusting way, then actually this incredible self-mending body I have, which is constantly trying to discharge stuff like that gooey emotional stuff I have stuck in me, any challenging person or situation that triggers that is actually an opportunity for me to breathe into it, dissolve some of it, like the ancient Taoists do dissolving ice to water, water to steam. Anything that triggers me is actually an opportunity for my body to basically do a sort of astral shit out of my chest or out of my solar plexus challenging people are actually walking laxatives for the horrible stuff that we're carrying um, I, I love actually I'm framing several people that way right now and it's just yeah. it's really refreshing and I'm loving it depends how you want to frame your life you know both things are true yes this person is wrong and terrible and I wish they didn't do that and at the same time they are a walking permission slip a walking laxative for me to discharge some gooey constipated stuff that I'm carrying in my throat and chest Really, our self-mending body, our body, the human body, is the most incredible self-mending machine we know of in the galaxy. It's constantly scanning for viruses, making its own drugs to flush them out, mending bones, healing skin, rejuvenating itself. It's the most incredible self-mending thing. It's not just on the material plane, a self-mending thing. It's also in our emotional and mental scarring and trauma and pain, a self-mending thing. It knows if we're carrying a great bucket of unprocessed pain in our chest from our childhood and from our whole life and the things we haven't dealt with. It knows that every morning, just like it wants to get up and do a poo in the morning, it also wants to get up and discharge a bucket full of a thimble full at least of that stuff every day. So on the one hand, we actually start mirror, we start magnetizing people to come and trigger that for us. 
So they're actually gifts. They're walking laxatives to give us an opportunity that we wouldn't, let's face it, otherwise take to love ourselves, breathe into that explosion as it happens in our chest, soothe ourselves, dissolve it a little bit, and take that opportunity every time somebody is a pain in the ass to discharge a little bit of accumulation. Yeah, yeah. So, so Jamie, um, uh, just a, a, a note here. The way we were introduced to you was a, a posting on Facebook that I saw back in November about um, authenticity is the new sexy. Um, and I, what I'm hearing you talk about is is really living authentically. When you talk about um, allowing us to process and react and let it flow through, uh, it sounds to me like that's that's a step in the authentic living um, textbook uh, or into that world. Um, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, that, yeah, I mean that is what's really going on. What's really true is that when you upset me, you are giving me an opportunity to discharge some horrible stuff I'm carrying that I don't need anymore. That is the truth. You know, that is as authentic as I can say it. The trouble is we have this silent contract with each other, let's say in our jobs or in our families, that we won't trigger each other, we won't rock the boat, everyone has to be, you know, appropriate and nice. And the problem with that is we wear masks hiding any of the bits that aren't appropriate. And we all have much of us that isn't appropriate. And we hide all the bits that are maybe needy or we hide all the bits that are feeling rageful. And we hide all the bits that I don't want you to see about me because you might reject me. And I exhaust myself wearing a mask for other people that wouldn't hang out with me unless I wore a mask. But ironically, those are the very people I don't want to hang out with. Who wants to hang out with people that need you to wear a mask in order to love you? So we're exhausting ourselves. Let's say that again. We're exhausting ourselves wearing masks for people that would only hang out with us or employ us if we wore masks, who are the very people that it's toxic to be around. Let's get rid of the mask gradually. We don't have to rip it off violently, but bit by bit in our comfort zone, let's get rid of the mask. And then whoever stays, stays. And those are the people you want to hang out with. Yeah, and what what occurs to me is that you talked about how we're programmed from from the time we're born and brought and arrive on this earth, and those things that we need to process and flush out that might make people uncomfortable, the program is really about not making them uncomfortable. It's things that they don't want to see coming from us that make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and so we have these rules, as you're saying, that that we behave in certain ways, and it's like in relationship. We lie to each other that we're never going to find anyone else attractive. You know, we have this contract, you know, I won't ever make you feel jealous and insecure about being abandoned. You won't ever make me feel jealous and insecure about being abandoned. So we're going to live for 40 years together and pretend we never were sexually attracted to anybody else. It's a silly, silly contract that then through that suppression, all kinds of affairs happened that maybe wouldn't have happened if we could have earlier on talked about the attraction that came up, processed it, and got through it. But because it's so hidden, like the beach ball you push under the surface of the swimming pool, it flies up eventually and, you know, leaks out. There would be probably much, much less affairs and deceit going on in relationships if we felt more easy early on about saying, hey, you know that friend of yours that you brought back? I was quite attracted to her. And if we were upfront about it, it wouldn't build into such a taboo and such a hidden thing and then grow and then become some compulsion. Right. And, and in truth, allowing things to process, you know, through the ups and the downs, it, you know, creates the human energy, which makes us human. If we stifle all that, we end up being, you know, these sort of walking zombies that are sort of emotionally dead, unconnected. 
completely. Wow. I mean, when I, there's nothing that's going to stir other people up in their lack of freedom than your freedom. When you start behaving free, other people who aren't ready to be that free are suddenly, shut him up. And then, you know, they kill Gandhi, they kill Jesus, they kill everyone who's walking around saying, hey, be free, when they're not ready to do it. The, the classic is, is when parents shout at their kids in the back when the kids are crying. And they say, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Or, or what have you got to cry about? You've got the most amazing life, not like when my child. And it's, what's happening is when the kids are crying, it stirs up the uncried tears of the parent. So when parents are trying to shut down their kids from crying, it's because they themselves are not really mature enough to feel and cry their own tears. So they need to stop the kids doing it because it's stirring them up. There's this constant ancestral cycle of everyone muting and silencing the next generation. And that's why we, there's so much violence and so much acting out that goes on because it's just a purely suppressive environment. So much of what you're saying is resonating for me. I'm, I, you know, I'm think, I think of my own childhood and, and I think of those um, loud, boisterous moments and, and being told to be quiet. Or, I, you know, I would, if I saw someone else cry, I would cry. And I, I'm, that, that very phrase, like, what are you crying about? Nothing's wrong with you. Yeah. And, and that, you know, I, I even want to take it back a step farther. Um, Tom said something that, you know, it happens at birth. It happens, when, you know, when we're kids. And, and I'm hearing you say that it's, it's happening before. This is something we're bringing with us on a soul level here as we step into the human form. And I'm curious. I love the idea of the theme park. By the way, you've got me going in 12 different directions at once here. What do you think, because this is a question I ask myself a lot, what do you think the soul or our, you know, our unhuman forms want from this human form? And to go through this and this learning of, like, you know, we're connected now, we're not, but we're going to remember we are again. What, what, you know, what's the meaning of life, Jamie, I guess is what I'm asking. It's a little I question. I, 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 I have, you know, I think that that's, and not a misconceived question, but I'm actually really not interested in the answer to it, is, is my short answer to that. I don't, I don't care to have a meaning for it. Um, I just care to experience the excitement and the, the uh, inspiration of the moment and trust it. I don't know about an outcome. A meaning suggests that there has to be an outcome. Mm. And I do think that the thing about Earth that I know is that it is the planet of experience and also, as Bashar says, who is this genius extraterrestrial channeled in Los Angeles, it is the planet of limitation. So one could argue that this theme park of limitation, what do we have on Earth? We have domestic violence, we have wars, we have famine, we have poverty, we have disease, we have cancer, we have spastics, we have mental illness, we have autism, we have pollution, we have species disappearing, we have gun runners, corrupt banks, we have screwed up soil, screwed up air, screwed up water, huge corporations, Monsanto, Jumjes, you know, I mean, you yeah, couldn't imagine more limitations. You literally could not think up more kinds of limitations than we have on this planet. And from some people believe that souls come here to experience and play with and experiment with all kinds of different limitations. And that's the point. 
So, it, so being an activist and trying to heal the world, so to speak, is actually a misconceived idea to be scary. We keep it like this, especially if you've been born in the Second World War, you would have thought the world was ending, you know, from that. If you were born 10 years later, it was reds under the beds and the commies were going to come and get you. A little bit later than that, it was the nuclear cold war that was going to blow us all up. Then after that, you have global warming and bird flu. It's like we keep it like this. Especially whenever you're born, it looks like it's going to be the end of the world. And it's supposed to be like this to be part of the human condition of experimenting and having your death, you know, in your face. Uh, so trying to be an activist and so-called heal the world is about as useful as trying to dismantle the mechanical shark at the Jaws exhibit at Universal Studios. It's meant to be scary. You're not meant to come along and, and mess it up. It's like people telling you, your ego is, it's, it's, this is all an illusion. This is all an illusion. I hate those kinds of people. I came here for this illusion. It's like spending your 10 bucks to go and see Avatar 3D in the cinema and someone sitting next to you going, hey, they're not really blue. And did you know they built all this in a Macintosh computer? It's like, shut <laughs> up. I just spent that. I know you want to stop them. Yeah, so yeah. You know, you're meant to have an ego. People coming here and having ego aversion, there's a really big misconception in the so-called spiritual circles and yogic circles that you're supposed to amputate your ego. You're supposed to get rid of your ego. The ego is a terrible thing. These people are totally missing the point. Your ego is the nib of your fountain pen of Earth. It is your interface about being an individual. And believe it, you came to Earth to be an individual and have that experience. To come here and say, hey, I'm not an individual. I don't want to be an individual is missing half the trip. You're both an individual and something connected to the oneness. But you try and get rid of being an individual on earth. Good luck. You know, it's amputating the ego. And ego doesn't even mean ego in these spiritual circles. Ego means wanker. If somebody comes in and they're being a certain way that spiritual people don't like, they nudge each other and go, hmm, ego. They don't mean ego. They mean asshole. <laughs> it's the way to swear and not, and not say it. Mm -hmm. So, Jamie, I, I'm curious. I wonder if um, we're here to figure this, figure out that the ego has a role, that it is about individuality, and yet we can all be here together in both a an ego-centric uh, world and connected to each other. Is that okay? I mean, can we... Can it be all right that I'm an individual and I'm connected? Can we live in that paradox and neither have to be wrong or right? Do we need to have a meaning for it in order to wake up in the morning and be loving with each other? I don't, yeah. know, that, I don't know that we have to, but would it not, well, uh, would it not eliminate some of these um, limitations that you talk about? Well, and, and what I'm hearing, though, is that I, I think for me, that was the best answer anybody's ever given me to uh, that, that question. And and it seems to me like this is the place where we get to be really messy, you know, where, you know, there were some places as a kid, you just couldn't get messy. And then there was this one place where you were really allowed to. And that yeah. this is this is it. This is this is our messy place. And, you know, Jamie, I've asked the question in the, in the past, well, what if we solve everything? What if we fix everything as human beings? What does that make us? Like some of those sci-fi movies where everybody's walking around in white robes and all of a sudden everybody's blonde and, you know, yeah. and, it's, and it's just, and nothing wrong with being blonde, by the way. I get phone calls about that. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it becomes this utopia and I don't think that's what this is. And, I totally that's agree the, with you. Yeah, that's why the theme park was so um, energizing when you said that. I said, yes, 
what the yeah, we really are in a theme park of of life here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't believe, I think if, if we've learned one thing about this earth plane is that it works in the polarity. We have men and women, we have dark and light, we have love and hate, we have incredibly rich, we have incredibly poor. This whole planet, you only need to look at electricity, at nature, at water, everything works through computers, everything works through a duality polarity sexuality it's all based in the number two and in a polarity all sexual attraction i don't need to list all the things the whole of our system is based in polarity so you're never going to get rid of the darkness people who are on a spiritual path who say i'm all about the light i'm a light warrior i'm moving away from the darkness towards the light these people are in the way they're actually being contrary to what it is actually the point of being here on earth. We are not on a journey away from darkness towards light. No one who's mature is. We are on a journey towards darkness and light. Unless you're embracing both of those things, unless you are acknowledging that you are an animal and an angel, you are a wise guru in charge of a mental patient. That's what I think is the, the closest description of a human being is, a wise guru in charge of a mental patient. That's what we all are. So perfect. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Doesn't that resonate? We're it full does. of darkness and light. And that's the problem why most spiritual people are so screwed up and neurotic because they're feeling so guilty about the fact that they are full of darkness and light. And they can't handle it because some stupid swami once told them that they were supposed to be only into light and away from the darkness. And there's this whole ju judgmental judo-Christian trip that they can't get away from. When you're on a journey towards embracing both your darkness and your light, you have a hope of having a creative, empowered, juicy life. And so the huge shift that we need to make in our so-called spiritual self-awareness is to start loving our darkness and being more affectionate about ourselves when we fail, when we're not getting it right, when we're not perfect, when we are quite dark and feeling like a sex maniac and a bit perverse or feeling like a murderer when the person in, in front of us is driving too slow and we're late. You know, these are all parts of us. And these guys need to be played with these characters because when they start being suppressed, they start growing fangs and moss and leap out at, at unexpected moments. These demons and these characters that live in us, they can't be hidden away. You can't start hating yourself because you're full of darkness as well as light. That is the human condition. So in a way, the idea of being a, a spiritual warrior or an activist and trying to get rid of all the darkness in the world and only make light happen, one is pointless, it's never going to happen. And on another level, that shadow denial creates a Hitler. Mm. When the I heard something, and I don't know if this is true, and I, maybe there's some of your listeners who know more about uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, than me. I once heard this, and it just rang true for me, even if it's nonsense, that once... Earlier in the last century, the Tibetans, out of all their millions of ceremonies and deities and kind of rituals that they did up in the monasteries and the high mountains, they removed from the ceremonies one of the darkest, most destructive, chaotic demons. They stopped honoring it. And at that moment, China invaded. Hmm. Interesting. There is going to be darkness and light. I've always thought it might be really fun to create like a sci-fi comic or, you know, graphic novel or something like that, where we have the dark makers. We acknowledge there is going to be an equal amount of darkness and light on the planet. So in this time where there's all these spiritual people doing this incredible amount of light work, God sends down a team of really wise, incredibly evolved 
bodhisattvas to bring the perfect amount of darkness in not too harmful a way to keep the balance while it not getting destroying the whole earth. There has to be an equal amount of darkness to balance the light at all times. So we've got to be careful how much light we want to bring in. We've got to have, it'd be better to, instead of constantly trying to only bring in light, trying to constantly get a balance between our inner light and darkness. And then we don't need to live in these huge pendulum swims of polarities and create these Hitlers and these, you know, American governments. So, so Jamie, in the, and I'm not a historian uh, or an academic, but in the history of mankind as we know it, has there ever been a society that has lived with this type of uh, belief system or philosophy? It's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know too much about all the Atlantean stuff, which you know, apparently destroyed itself as well. Uh, I think it's this constant ongoing experiment. I certainly think that small communities have managed it, certainly for a time. But the thing is, you know, once again, you know, we are all full of greed. We are full of grandiosity. We are full of all those things. And they will come and bite you in the ass in the end. And we are all a walking cautionary tale for each other. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure there have been certain communities, certainly certain families that have managed to pull it off. Um, it's an ongoing journey. And I find it very inspiring when I'm around people that are unremarkable. You know, that's another trap, I think, if we've sold ourselves this myth about specialness. Chogyam Rinpoche, who was Pema Chodron's guru, and uh, those guys are just fantastic. Um, I always have a Pema Chodron book near me at all times. I think she's just one of, the, one of my lifelines. She's so beautifully uh, eloquent. And her guru, um, her Tibetan monk guru guy, Rinpoche, um, his great mantra was, no big deal. We're too into this specialness. We, you know, we've been brought up uh, since we were little to be the prettiest, to be the best, to be all this kind of competitive thing. And that's in the way. Once again, it's creating a polarity. If it was up to me, I would take all competition out of schools. I don't think there's any such thing as healthy competition. No kid needs to be first and be better than others in order to have done great work. And what actually happens when you have competition in school is that the people who keep coming first get a fake view of how good they are. And the people who keep coming last get um, a fake view of how bad they are. So I had an experience when I was at school where I was bottom of everything. I was like a problem kid. And my best friend was top of everything. He was music scholar and everything scholar and head of school and all this stuff. When we both left school, he went to university and he got treated just like an average sized fish in an average sized pond. It was such a letdown for him. It was, he hadn't prepared himself. He had no realize it was going to happen. He just got taught, got treated averagely. But for him, it was such a step down. He got so demotivated that he went into a huge depression and never found what he wanted to do till he was in his 40s. I left school having been bottom of everything. And I walked into a job because I couldn't go to university, didn't want to, went into a job. And once again, got treated with total averageness. But for me, it was such a step up. I thought, these people love me. I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I started really achieving amazing things. It was such a step up. So competition in school, it gives everybody a false view of where they are. And you don't need to be set against compared to somebody else in order to see how you're doing. Well, it, it's curious to me. I mean, when you talk about competition, um, what what the thought that triggers in me is that competition really supports the, the scarcity model or the belief that there isn't enough and we all have to be better than the next guy. And towards it as well. We can't slow down. Right. We've so, been sold these incorrect myths. Ramdas talks about it. Chomsky talks about it. Noam Chomsky. We've been sold more is better. That's incorrect. 
Mm-hmm. We've been sold younger is better. That's definitely incorrect. Old people are incredibly wise and amazing. Young people are totally like just pointless, and yet we worth, worship youth and we ignore the old people. We've been taught that faster is better when actually slow is better, and leaving space is always much, much better than rushing in. These are fundamental myths that we've got the wrong way around, and they create all the fun and games and insanity of planet Earth. Like countries and, well, even like owning property and country boundaries and, you know, wars yeah. over resources, things like that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. It offends me. I mean, I sometimes feel very violent about it. You know, I want to go and sort of just burn all the passports. I want to go into all the banks and just erase all their computer systems. And, you know, I just, I sometimes I feel so enraged. And then I realize that's part of the game of this limitation you know, monopoly game that, that is to be able to hold it together in this Babylon of insanity, you know. I mean, John John Lennon had it right when he said, what if there were no countries? What if there were no religion? You know, we were all just one, you know. Yeah, but that's all part of the duality, you know. It's like you can have religion. I mean, it's lovely to have lots of different flavors of ways to be spiritual. I love the Hindu imagery. I love all the Jewish stories. I love some of the Bible stories. I love all the rituals of you know the um, the imams and and the uh, the ways of uh, Allah. There is so much richness in the music and the storytelling and the philosophy and the culture. You know, it's wonderful to have many many different doorways to get to God. I'm not knocking it. It's but the competitive part of it when we start having to put a value next to them. That's where we get screwed up. It's not that it's not great to have an incredible rich diversity of paths towards God. In my father's house, there are millions of doors. That's all great. It's when we start saying this door is better than that door. You know, uh, Debbie Ford, I think was her name, who wrote The Dark Side of the Light Chasers. Mm -hmm. One of the illustrations she gives is that when we are born, we are each a castle with a thousand rooms. Right. And each one of those rooms has a gift inside for us. But as we grow up, our parents say, darling, we don't really use these rooms over here so much. So we board those ones up. And as we go through our childhood, people walk through our castle and they they start telling you which rooms they like more than other rooms. And more and more of the rooms... More and more of the rooms go into disuse, and it's that value judgment that starts shutting us down uh, that is the problem. And, and, and when we get negative feedback, we start, we're so approval addicted. When we're little, I mean, I, this is really the core of all my workshops. When we're little and we're taught how to, you know, we're born into being a baby, we're like a floppy thing that needs to learn how to use its spacesuit to hold things and wipe our mouths and stay clean and eat and walk and do stuff. The way that our parents and carers teach us, with all the best intentions in the world, is that when we get it right, we get gushing approval, and when we don't get it right, we get much less. So as all the cocaine dealers in your listeners will know, when you give something wonderful and then take it away and give something good and take it away, give something and withhold it, what that creates in the human brain is an addict. So with all the best intentions in the world, we have all been turned into approval addicts in our upbringing. And it goes, it's reinforced all the way through school. You get it right, you get a prize, you get to the top of the class, you don't get it right, you get told off, you're a dunce in the corner. The more right you get it, the more love you get, the less right you get it, the less love you get. We're constantly reinforced into this approval addiction. And the greatest proof of that in today is Facebook. It's a massive approval fix. It's like Huxley. You go there to get your little... Oh, how many likes did I get under my roomy quote? Oh, 17 likes. Look how approved of I am today. You know, we're totally addicted. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. You know, how many people liked my recipe? How many people yeah. liked we're my photo? What else, can I, what else can I put in there so that more people like me? Or how many friends do yeah. you have? Why, you know, okay. And most of them we don't know. 
So the, the extension of this is, is what goes even worse is that when we're growing up and someone gives us directly negative approval, stop that, that's disgusting. It's like, oh my God, must never let them ever see me do that again. Snip, cut that part of myself off forever. Oh, be a good girl for mummy. Okay, I won't ever be naughty again. Suppress. Good boys don't do that. Okay, suppress. Come on, be a good girl. All these negative bits of feedback, we unconsciously were so approval addicted that we will snip and suppress and snip and suppress and we've violently edited ourselves down to what I call these crippled brochures of ourselves that we present to the world, these appropriate versions of ourselves that we think will get the love, will get acceptance and hide all the other bits. It's incredibly violent. It's the seat of all illness and no great masterpiece ever came out of that appropriate zone. No great parenting ever came out of it. No great lovemaking ever came out out of it all the great characters of literature come around the edges of that place and so my workshops and my art and my films and my music they're really all about exploring trying to be fascinated with the edges of the comfort zone of our appropriateness without being violent to ourselves and trampling our boundaries too much you're listening to the voice of leadership radio network our guest is jamie caddo artist and activist we're excited to announce, beginning March 18th and 19th and continuing on March 25th and 26th, our Leader Fire series, Leadership Circle, leaders Bob Anderson and Dan Holden. In this series, we experience the journey through the Leader Fire of transformation. We take an in-depth look at the stages of transformation, both personally and organizationally, and the challenges of each. Dan and Bob provide insight into coaching leaders in the fire and give us tools and disciplines to help all of us as leaders navigate the leader fire journey. We're honored to have been named the official radio network for the Coaches Training Institute's 2014 summit in April, making the transition from me to we. Here's a recorded message from one of the summit's amazing presenters, L.A. Redding. Hi, my name is L.A. Redding and I'm with the Coaches Training Institute and president of L.A. and Company. I'm here with the Voice of Leadership Network to invite you to the Coaches Training Institute 2014 Summit on April 10 through 12th in beautiful Napa Valley, California, with 600 coaches and leaders from all over the world going on a journey from me to we. I'm a presenter at the summit, and I'll be talking about relationship agility, which is a topic that every leader currently leading in the world today is interested in, and anybody who has a life that's busy. So come and see me there and come and join us. For information or to register, please go to www.coactivesummit.com. Space is limited, so please register today. We'll see you there in California in April. You can tell me happy birthday. It's my birthday. Bye. We're back with Jamie Caddo, artist, musician, and activist. So, Jamie, perfect segue into where I'm feeling compelled to go next, and that is that is your art. And, um, and I know you've got a statement on your website that says um, making act- activism, making activism the driving art movement of this era. When did that begin for you? Uh, it's a it's a funny polarity. I mean, it's it's began with me every sing, every, every time I felt injustice. Um, people ask me, was I bullied as a, ch- as a child? Yes, I was, but not by other children. I was bullied by my parents, and you know, not my parents. I was bullied by my carers and teachers. 
you know, massively because, you know, it's all about conformism and the whole school system is set up to make you, to impose their structure on you, not to lead out of you the best of you. The word education literally coming from Latin means to lead out from within. That's what education means. And yet our education system is very, very far from leading out from within, unless you're lucky enough to go to a Waldorf school or a Steiner school, if you've got a few quid. The main part of the education system is basically to create conformists and to weed out the people who won't conform, to create good little soldiers, good little worker bees, and to get rid of all the people that won't conform. That was very traumatic for me as a child. And um, I was much more fascinated with getting it wrong than getting it right. You know, getting it right, the computer goes bing, get it right, the computer goes bing, get it right, they go good boy, get it right, they go good boy. To any intelligent child, this becomes very boring after a while. And you want to see what happens when you don't get it right. Because when you get it wrong, that's the interesting thing. When you get it wrong, the computer goes blah, 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 always in a uniquely insightful way. As the great New York word artist Jenny Holzer says, spit a mouthful of milk over someone if you want to learn something about their personality fast. <laughs> um, so the natural curiosity of an intelligent child is going to play with the word no as well as play with the word yes isn't always going to settle for the approval that comes that becomes insipid um so there was a great injustice in the i felt in the way that i was treated at the time and i feel a great injustice on seeing bullies you know when i see bullies my blood just erupts in a volcano i want to bully bullies <laughs> that's the funny thing when i see bullies it brings out the bully in me and i want to bully those people <laughs> yes it does it doesn't it and i and i had that kind of um bullying as a child too and I, there was there, you, when I see it now, they, the idea of it just—it just makes my blood boil that someone's going to treat someone else that way. And you, and 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 even in the arts and film, you want to see the bully get his or hers, don't you? Yeah. I mean, really, um, you really take that stance because, it, and you, in a sense, almost become the bully. Totally. And this is you know, and, and that's and that's like this cyclical thing. It's like I don't like that. Stop bullying. So I'm going to bully you. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And that's great about that. You know, how, can I keep my heart open to these bullies? Can I still stop them, but not want vengeance against them? Yeah, keep the heart open. Right. Yeah. And in, and in Debbie's for, in Debbie Ford's world, what's in that room of darkness of bullies for us as individuals? Yeah. You know, mm, how am I bullying exactly. myself? Right. Exactly. I mean, how many uh, of your listeners or you, when you catch yourself failing or acting like an idiot, you go, oh, did it again. You go, oh, did it again. You give yourself that little pinch, that little electric shot of violence. I believe that self-awareness, if it leads you to give yourself that little bit of violence when you fail, it's better to be a zombie and not be self-aware at all if when you're self-aware and you catch yourself, you're going to be disappointed in yourself or mean to yourself. It is actually taking us in the opposite direction. The most important thing to do when we catch ourselves failing or not being this enough or not being that enough, the most important response is affection. If we can't treat ourselves affectionately when we catch ourselves so-called failing or not measuring up to how we want to be, if we can't be affectionate about it, it's best to get off the path altogether. Because when you're mean to yourself or disappointed with yourself when you don't succeed the way you want to, you're actually dragging yourself in the opposite direction. I always ask my groups, if God came into this room and said, you are never going to evolve even one more millimeter in any area of your life, would you still be able to love yourself unconditionally and fully? If the answer is no, you have a problem. If you're waiting to get to a certain point of yoga or meditation or something in order to really be able to love and approve of yourself fully, then you're really screwed up. Enlightenment is actually being able to love the total freaky wounded creature that you are now. That is enlightenment, not 
being some future more meditative more yogic more peaceful whatever person no enlightenment is loving the freak that you are today so i have a practice where when i catch myself being an idiot or being grumpy or being unenlightened or being whatever instead of going oh i'm so disappointed in myself or oh, i did it again is to actually just gently rub to find it cute Find it cute how unhealably unenlightened I am and start going, oh, you're doing it again and start being a bit more playful and affectionate with it. That, more than any other practice, if your listeners, you know, believe a word I say, forget all your other practices, co-focus on this one thing. And that is the hundred times a day where you catch yourself being less than you want to be, immediately going to being affectionate to yourself and nothing else. That is the most strong spiritual practice anyone can do. That is such a bold action and such an incredible challenge to not only to our listeners, certainly to me personally, as I'm hearing you say that, because who doesn't have those moments and, and, and sometimes many in one day where you say, oh, oh, you said that again or you did that again. And there is that little pinch or poke that says, what? Yeah, how come you can't get it right? How come yeah. you keep doing that? And it, it, it is... Um, yeah, it's everybody. It's <laughs> your mother, your father, your teachers. It's, yeah. it's everybody around that is, you. That is the biggest barrier to the spiritual evolution of the individual more than anything else. It's only about being affectionate to yourself. That's it. And if you can find yourself cute, I always think the spiritual path or the whatever path you want to call it is a rodeo horse covered in Vaseline. Do you have Vaseline in America? Oh, yes, we do. The path is a rodeo horse covered in Vaseline. You're going to be on your ass a thousand times a day. You've got to start finding it cute and funny or you are screwed. Well, you know what what else is an interesting sport as as you're finding yourself cute and funny and loving yourself is to observe the reactions of those around you and just be amused at that as well. Because it can be anything. I mean, it can be negative, it can be positive, but it's more about them than it is about you, you know, so. Well, and it could be you. It could be you doing that. And so, you know, it's, it's all part of us. Tom, I'm reminded of process. You know, we, Jamie, Tom, and I both went through a coaching certification program together, and there was this one, um, one of the many pieces was about, you know, what can't you be with? And looking at it in yourself, because that's where it lives. If you can't be with it, that's that's one of the most important things to look at in yourself. The only important thing. Anyone else who's triggering you is just a signpost to that thing. They're helping you out. This world is a seven billion strong hall of mirrors, purely to benevolently invite you back to your power and to make you aware of places where you're abandoning and not loving yourself. And that's the biggest trap of the spiritual path is because we are so finish line oriented, so goal oriented. We can only love ourselves when we're doing well and love ourselves when not love ourselves when we're not doing well. It makes the whole spiritual path pointless because the only important thing about the spiritual path is loving yourself and therefore you'll have love for other people. But just forget about other people for a minute. You know, we can park that. Just if you can really be loving to yourself, all the problems of your life fall away. And that's the trip. People go, well, how do I love myself? Well, one of the ways is how we've just said, start finding it cute when you catch yourself. You've got to be like the laughing policeman. You do catch yourself, but you laugh your head off every single time. Like Hafiz said, the poet, he said, me and God have become like two fat men in a rowing boat. We keep bumping into each other. (laughs) The other thing is, if you want to, you know, carry on this path of self-love and, you know, what does that mean? The other thing is start being a bit more visible in the parts of yourself that you think are unlovable. 
let other people see them a bit more. And you'll suddenly realize no one's that impressed. You know, I've had so many people that I'm counseling them or coaching them doing stuff and they go, I can't tell you this. I go, oh, try me. They go, no, no, I really, I can't, this is so shameful. I can't tell you. Oh, just try me. Okay, okay, well, please, you can't tell anyone else I told you this. Okay, I'm listening. And then they tell you something and you go, what? That's it? Come on, how, what a disappointment. I thought you'd have something much crazier and darker than that. And it's like, then they realize like, that you, you, you're actually not really, really impressed with their thing they hate themselves about. And that gives them a permission slip to say, oh, and they, they start the phantoms that we hate ourselves about, that we're so ashamed of, that we can't possibly love ourselves, the ways we can't love ourselves. If you allow someone else to see it a little bit, share it, not always be in hiding it, and, and that's where the shame and the, and, the, and, the, and the illness comes in. But if you if you dare to let other people love you in the things you can't love about yourself, it's an incredibly beautiful and intimate causing practice. And shame. You said the word shame. That is such a huge word in in any language. And so much of what what we do and don't do, I think, stems from that. It's it's the fear of. And it's being a, to the approval addiction again. It, comes it does. It goes, yes, it goes right back to the approval addiction. And it's the way we've got to start with how we're dealing with our kids. Can we give them the positive mirroring without the good girl, bad girl thing? Is there a way to give them the encouragement but not make it depend, not make any connection to love based on it? So this is something quite disturbing. And try this, listeners, uh, try this at home. Ask your kids... Why do I love you? Some of you will find, maybe most of you will find to, to your trauma, that nearly every child, when you ask, why do I love you, will reply something about being good or obedient. It's heartbreaking. Mm, it is. Yeah, that, that answer, I would never want to hear that answer. Yeah, try it. Try it and repent. <laughs> repent. <laughs> no, I have to find myself cute that it's, yeah, I can't, I can't. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm making myself wrong. I can't, yeah. You know, and it's that we don't know how. I, or, you know, that this is, I mean, this has been going on since, uh, who knows how, I mean, it's in our DNA, I yeah. think, in so many ways. And it's, you know, our parents, and we always say, well, I'm not going to be like my parents. And so then we just screw it up a different way. And then our kids may do what the grandparents did because they don't want to be like us. And so there is, you know, that. What well, about kids rebelling? Kids will rebel, not against just their parents, just in general. Kids rebel against the part of their parents which is hypocritical and unauthentic. Uh It's not that, you know, they Uh don't just rebel willy-nilly. It's when they see their parents saying, don't take drugs, as they're pouring themselves another coffee and they're knocking later back another glass of wine and a whiskey. It's like when they see the hypocrisy, then they go straight into doing it too. But when they see the parents truly embodying what they're preaching, then that actually goes in. There's no point in telling your children to eat healthily if you yourself are not eating healthily. There's no point in telling your kids to respect themselves and respect their bodies if you yourself are totally obese and not looking after yourself and loving yourself. There's no point in telling your kids not hit each other if they see the parents being violent to each other psychically or shouting at each other. It's when they're seeing their parents not embodying the very things they're insisting upon that we run into trouble. It's the hypocrisy that they correctly rebel against, not just parents in general. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, when you tell your kids not to to go out and drink, and, you know, as you said, while you're sitting back having a glass of wine, they just say, well, why? You know, you're doing it. Why can't I? And, um, you know, I was reading an article the other day about, you talk about positive um, reinforcement to kids. This is an article about parents watching their kids play sports 
and how, you know, we're so over the top with do better, do better, do better. Ugh. And the, the author of the article was saying what she says to her kids is simply, I love to watch you play. Yes. It's just that simple. That's, that is it. And also I've heard another great thing like that, which my brother's telling me about with, with kids is when they come home and they show you a picture they've done or something they've done, you don't praise the result. You praise the hard work. Yeah. I mean, it, saying, That's the best picture I've ever seen. God, you're an incredible artist, which reinforces the fake spe specialness thing. You just say, wow, you really worked hard on that picture. That's great. So you, you praise the hard work, not the result. Right. Or I, or just, I love that you did this. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, we, we, on the Voice of Leadership, we talk a lot about the leader's journey. You know, most of the people who are on our program are on quests to create more connection in the world, to create sustainability, to really share the humanness that in many places feel like it's lacking or it's gone, it's just not there. And I want to take this to you a little bit about your journey and some of the projects that you've worked on. There's just so much that we could talk about. You're very much of a renaissance type of person in my mind with everything that you do between the film and the, and the music and the activism. And, and if you could... Pick one of the projects that you've worked on that really stirred your soul. And I have a feeling they all stir your soul or you wouldn't have done them. Where would you go? And would you talk well, about it a little bit? Well, two things. I mean, right now the workshops are blowing my mind. To be in the presence of that much transformation and watch people dissolve everything in the way of their genius and to be there in amongst the bravery and just see the whole thing lighten up is incredible. But... As a piece of art, I have, to, I have to keep coming back to our project, which is called One Giant Leap, uh, where we went around the world making music with the most extraordinary singers and players and having conversations with all the incredible uh, thinkers and writers and freaks and artists and people in the street. And it was such an epic undertaking, going to the desert and going to the jungle and go down the Amazon and going to the skyscrapers and the mud huts of crazy places in Africa and, and such an unbelievable diversity of experience and the incredible challenge of just the production of producing that, forgetting about the direction and the artistic part, just to, to produce that and make that work on a, you know, it was such an unbelievable undertaking and it has had such an amazing effect. You know, I, I pretty much never go a day without a letter from someone in some far-flung country saying how that one giant leap project either one giant leap or what about me has touched someone's lives and i really love how all the art we make particularly one giant leap but, but all the other songs and music that i've made it's always like a message in a bottle you know these days with digitals where you can copy it and send it i'm a big believer in piracy i like music piracy i like digital film piracy i like the fact that people can copy it and send it and copy it and send it when somebody rings me up or sends me an email or sends me a message and says oh your music was the soundtrack to my three-month trip around Asia. I don't care whether they paid for it or not at that moment. You know, I'm just totally overjoyed. You know, we just did a new album called Internal Music for Dissolving, which is out on Sounds True, uh, an American label. And that was music to go deeper into feeling. Uh, so that, you know, some tears are hard to cry. Some feelings are hard to access. And I'm a big believer that we need to go deeper into our feelings to dissolve everything that's stuck. So we made this album called Internal Music for Dissolving on Sounds True. And once again, I get these letters telling people saying, oh, I found it so hard to shift this melancholy. I found it so hard to shift this, you know, but I've been listening to your thing and everything's moving. God, it makes me feel so incredible when I hear feedback from people that 
are getting nourishment or getting you know stuff from from what we do and, and as i said everything we do is like a message in a bottle you never know where it's going to go you never know who's going to write to you from scandinavia or from botswana or from you know you just never know and it's so, so such a turn on to have even like you guys you know you were telling me you saw a facebook post of mine that turned you on and you you know i don't know who you guys are, you know, and suddenly these people, I don't know, are you in America, are you in Canada, I, I have no idea. <laughs> you're, you're calling me up saying, will I be on your show? I love this. Yeah, and we love the fact that we can call you up and that you were so accessible and so eager to be part of this with us, even even knowing, not knowing who we are. And we, we, are, we, are. we are in different parts of America, and, and um, I'm in New York, Tom's in Maryland, and um, and it, it, it's this being able to connect with something that, I mean, art, art always speaks to us. Art is its own special um, religion as, as far as I'm concerned. And it, and it always speaks to us. And, and there, I, I have to tell you that the one for me that just moved me so much was the Ubuntu child. Mm. When I went to the website after seeing Facebook and saying, okay, let me see who is Jamie Cato. Let me see who he is and, and, and seeing the Ubuntu Child Project. Mm. That, um, that still moves me even as I'm saying it right now. Yeah. I don't know if that one's ever going to get finished. I, I've run into that, pro, that project. Um, the project itself is amazing, but the, the part of it that's a film, um, it, may be, uh, it may never get actually finished because... Um, the, the the project itself I would rather talk about is, is is fascinating, which is that there is this literally millions of children with HIV in mm. South Africa, like an incredible amount. You can't imagine how many children are HIV positive over there, and they don't have any kind of you know looking after. They don't have you know they they took us to places where they say hey this is an orphanage. It's not an orphanage. It hasn't even got a roof. And it's some 13-year-old girl who's looking after her six siblings. I mean, it's, it's like a nightmare, apocalyptic kind of situation over there. And it really does break your heart. that The children of South Africa are a world problem, yet we have really washed our hands of them. And I really feel one of my, you know, you talk about having missions. On the one hand, I do believe that not to have attachments to outcome. Do what's exciting and inspiring, but don't be too attached to outcome. On the other hand, I do actually have a mission, which is to create more of a concept of usness in the world. The reason why we, are, why we allow mass rape to go on right now in the Congo is because we look at those brown people over there as them, not us. The reason we would allow genocide in the Sudan is for the same reason. The reason why, why we allow, um, even in America, the Guantanamo Bay torture chamber, incredibly, America still allows torture to go on. I mean, you guys are freaky in my opinion, but um, it's because we're doing it to them we still have such a strong concept of them. So me as an artist, I'm very passionate about creating projects which create a very strong concept of us. And one of the new projects, which I'm, I'm hoping to get um, support from Google Translate and anyone else listening that wants to get involved with this, is a project called 15 Minutes of Friendship. I was thinking to myself, how can we create more usness in the world, you know, to stop genocide in the Sudan or rape in the Congo or whatever? How can we create more usness? And I thought to myself, one of the places where, we, where people suddenly become us is our kids' friends. For some reason, when your kid brings back a friend, suddenly that kid is part of your family now. We, have, we, we, we very much look at our children's friends as us, 
they're a part of our family too. We're like surrogate parents for them. So I thought to myself, if we did a thing with Skype, where we said, I don't want your $5 a month, I don't want your money, I want your child to have a 15-minute video pen pal relationship with a kid in the Sudan or in the Congo or somewhere far away, then if, if once a month they were having a 15-minute chat with them online, uh, on video Skype or whatever, then suddenly that kid in the Sudan, your child has a friend in the Sudan, you're going to start looking at, at, at that kid as us. And therefore, the next time you hear that 100,000 people have been killed in the Sudan, you're going to have a very different relationship to that piece of information. So projects which are all about us, about connectivity, about getting rid of this kind of division of them and us, uh, I think is the key to solving the big genocide and mass rape and heavy things that we keep turning a blind eye to. Because if it was going on in Philadelphia, we would stop it tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, it's so far away. There's so much of it happening. I'm, as you were talking, I'm, I'm, I'm moved just by hearing the words of you. You know, you talking about mass rape and genocide, and and somehow I think there's so much of it happening that we shut down. We can't handle all of it happening at once, and we get small and to say, you know, I'm only this one person. How can I possibly do something? And not making that right or not making that wrong. I want to I want to connect you with um, with Melanie Kloss and the other side, and she's doing something similar in some ways to the 15 minutes of friendship with girls in India and girls in the United States. And we'll, we can talk about that uh, at another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want, just want to share that with you so you can take a look and see the work that she's doing in the world. Jamie, that's an amazing vision. I'm 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 just sitting here kind of going wow 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 and that's something that can start generations of change it's going to take generations for us to move really significantly in that direction but with global technology and the and the, the world becoming a smaller place it certainly is possible and that's yeah. um that's something that we talk about at the voice of leadership where we talk about humanity chapter next and what does the next chapter of humanity look like can you give us a little thought about, and I know I'm hitting you with that question cold, but give us a little thought about how you see the next chapter of humanity. Well, you mentioned leadership. I feel that the more we can become walking permission slips to be visible and fallible and foolish and hilarious and vulnerable in all our shadows and all our dark appetites and all our neediness and all the things that we hide, then as we are powerful artists and, and yet we're at the same time visible in all those shadows as well as in the light, then everybody else will start feeling more comfortable to come out of hiding and be more fallible and more visible in their shadows and in their light. And that is what's going to create unity. It's the denial of great big parts of ourselves which make us hide from each other and therefore compete with each other and therefore be divided from each other and judge each other and then start fighting each other. All the problems of the world stem from us hiding from each other, from a lack of intimacy. So what I'm really passionate about is creating more and more intimacy with ourselves, learning to pause and ask myself how I feel. When was the last time when, you, when someone upset you, you just stop and you go, okay, okay, how does that feel? What do I want right now? Rather than going straight into the battle or straight into the blame or straight into the control or the manipulation to make that thing stop. How about pausing, pausing, stopping for a moment and asking yourself how you feel. That is true intimacy. Once we start really pausing, we start feeling all of ourselves. We start being a little bit braver in being seen in not just the beautiful bits, not just the brochure. 
not as Chris Rock says, just turning up as the representative. That is what I think the next chapter is about. It's about a chapter of visibility. Visibility gets rid of shame. Uh, I have a game we play on the workshop called the first date game. Uh, the actress Lily Tomlin once said, never have lunch, never, never get married to anybody unless you first had lunch with their ex-wife. <laughs> you know, when we go on a first date, what we do is we bring the brochure. We, 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 we turn up to a first date or a job interview and we go, oh, I won't be any trouble. Oh, those needy, dramatic people, not like me. Oh. And we tell this whole kind of set of lies and show the brochure so that we can get accepted and loved. And then suddenly six months later, you see me screaming at some poor receptionist at a hotel. And you go, this is not the man I fell in love with. I thought he did one giant leap. But really, if we could lead with a full disclosure, how sexy and exciting would it be? We do this on the workshops where you play this first date game with couples who have been together for years or just people that have never met. And you sit opposite each other and you look at each other and you go, I find you very attractive. I really think this could go somewhere. But before we go any further, there's a few things you have to know. And you actually make the first date or the job interview about warning that person about you. And oh, that would have changed so many lives. Yeah, that's when you fall in love. I mean, any couples listening to this, when you finish listening to this, go and have dinner together and play this game where all you fess up and warn each other about each other. And then you ask each other questions about what you need in that situation. And then suddenly you start roaring with laughter. Stop getting up every morning pretending you're not. And actually go, yeah, I am a bit like this. And yeah, I am a bit like that. And I am very needy sometimes. And if you do this, I am going to freak out. And you, know, and you start disclosing it and warning it. And you can have a great giggle about it. And, and then that's where the true intimacy comes, is by sharing our shadows and lightening up about the whole thing. You know, We are all a walking freak. We're all a wise guru in charge of a mental patient. And the sooner we stop trying to present this brochure image of ourselves, exhausting ourselves wearing masks to be accepted, the sooner we can just lighten up around all that stuff, the next chapter will effortlessly flow into a much more loving, inclusive, collaborative, juicy and inspiring place. So can we, can we really do this? Can we live openly in vulnerability and truth? Do you think that would work? And, and what do you think it's going to take? Seems to be working for, you know, the people who, who I'm working with, who are doing the workshops, they're really making huge shifts in their life. And it's not the kind of shift which is a progression to a more spiritual this or other. You know, it's not earnest. It's actually the opposite of earnest. It's kind of foolish and childish. It's nothing kind of um, guru-ish or look at me, I am now sitting... I've evolved, I've evolved, look at me now. Much sillier than that. When you see the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu or the head of the Kung Fu Temple in Shaolin or the Native American chiefs, none of them are serious. You meet them and they're totally taking the mickey out of you the whole time. Yes, the childlike quality. It's very childish and silly, the whole thing. And you realize the whole thing that was such an important trip you know, and that's the problem with sort of, you know, yoga and I've done 25 years of meditation. It's so earnest. It's actually often taking people in exactly the opposite direction from where they're meant to be going in. Well, it takes us back to being children before we were civilized. And given our masks. Yeah. Yeah. What other projects stand out, Jamie? What other projects? Mm, other projects stand out. Um, I'm really loving working in companies now. I used to have a real judgmental aversion to big corporations and all that stuff. I started working for Pepsi. I did some work with Google, do some work with some of these big companies. And it's really exciting to go into those kind of structures and start being a disruptor and um, being disruptive and being a, a prodder and a, and a poker 
uh, the fool. And when you start seeing the domino effect inside those companies, when vulnerability comes in, when, when there's more intimacy in the workplace and people start seeing each other outside of their very limited roles, it doesn't have to be a big company like Pepsi. You know, I go into small companies, big companies. It's incredible how much more productive and how much more joyful the workplace becomes. That's really turning me on. I mean, people go to the workplace, they're spending 40 or 50 hours a week with people, much more time than they're spending with their wives and families and husbands. And yet they hardly know them. They're only seeing each other in the role. They're not actually seeing the person. And so naturally, they, they kind of think of their work life as different from their home life, and they're kind of just doing it to get by or doing it. The workplace is such an opportunity for joy and self-knowledge and intimacy and fun. And the places where I'm working now, where I'm going in, they can't wait now to get into work and, you know, really be intimately met and seen for who they truly are as a human. It's revolutionary. And although there are a lot of people who are terrified of it, there are more and more of these progressive companies, especially the bigger companies who have done their market research and they realize that intimacy and people being seen for who they really are and being a, a real sense of fulfillment is a real actual productive thing. You can make more profits when people feel intimate and fulfilled in the workplace. It's some of the bigger companies that have done that kind of research that realize that they need people like us to go in. And yeah, it's so beautiful to watch those places melt. And you're bringing food to the starving, and some people who've been starving so long don't even know that they've been starving. Yeah. And, and to your point, so many people spend much more time in their workplace than they do with family and friends. That it it is it's just it's it's a shame that there can't be more joy there, and there can't be more fun there, and that's Well, fun there can be. I mean, it, it's it's it doesn't take long. That's the extraordinary thing. You know, I shouldn't have to go in. To, to, to create a culture change in a company does not need you to go in every month for two years. You know, you should be able to do it within three months. Totally change the culture of your business. Wow, that's, that's, that's counterintuitive to everything that I've ever heard and read, and I love that. Yeah, because those people want to make more money. Yes, it's, like, it's like a therapist <laughs> wants you to be getting better, but they don't want you to get better. Ramdas used to talk about this. He goes, you know, if you couldn't be my patient, I didn't have a use for you. These people want to make more money. Of course, they want to come in month after month after month and take this program and take that program. And of course, because you make tons of more money that way. The truth is, if you come and have a coaching session with me, if you need more than two of them, I'm not doing my job. Right. You're really, you're really setting loose um, a part of in people and in, especially in organizations where they've been drummed into the hierarchical reactive um, kind of atmosphere you're really setting loose the other half of them that they really don't bring to work. Yeah. They leave it behind, and, and that's the creative side. And, and yeah, there's chaos, but there's a place for chaos. I'm not saying I want it to be only chaos. Right. I mean, I've also had companies that, you know, they, they bring me in, and, I, and I, don't, I don't manufacture or I don't kind of bracket it in a certain way to make it sound more attractive. I pretty much have the same spiel, you know, the same thing for everybody. You know, I, I believe the same um, precepts, the same cornerstones of, of my practice. And sometimes I go into to these companies and I talk about approval addiction and say that, yes, the stick and carrot, the approval addiction, you will get a certain level of work out of that, but you will not get full potential out of that at all. Right. Right. And they go away and they come back and they go, you know what, we thought about this and we like the stick and carrot. We like people to think that they're going to get much more when they achieve this and they're going to get less and get fired if they do. We want them to be a bit scared of failure. So no, thank you. You know, and I've had big companies who I won't name who are saying, no, we actually want to create that violence in the hearts and the fear. We want that. Uh, we think that makes people perform. And I'm saying, yeah, it, 
you know, that's old school. You know, that will make people perform, but they will work themselves to death, and you'll get 65% potential out of them. But believe me, you can get a lot more potential out of people when they're feeling joyful about what they're doing. Well, and ultimately, they'll see higher levels of turnover, which is which creates more cost for bringing new people into the organization. So it's all yeah. it, it ultimately counterproductive. And um, I mean, look at the workforce today. You know, people are in a state of total exhaustion. Yes, and, and, and it, brings, it brings more illness. And, you know, on the human side of it, which the business may say, well, you know, why are so many people out sick all the time or what, you know, and, and people out on leaves. And, and people are, it's creating illness within us and the body, uh, the, the stress or the, the fear of the, you know, the carrot being taken away or, what, or whatever might fall mm. as a result of failure. And, uh, well, and Jamie, one of the things that comes to mind, and I'll go back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, there, there, are, there is this polarity in organizations. There's the chaos of the creative arena, and there's the discipline and the structure of the, the getting things done portion. Mm. And those are two polarities that really need to exist to have a whole organization in, in terms of a, a good, healthy environment productive yeah. environment and they have to be managed and and but if you're doing what you really love to do you don't need any discipline to do it exactly but that's mm. the truth right is it you know when i'm really doing what i love to do you can't stop me i'm doing it all night i don't need to eat my body makes all its own vitamins thank you very much i don't need to eat i don't need to stop i've got all the energy in the world and i'm feeling joyful and excited to show it to you at the end if i'm not loving what i'm doing i shouldn't do it I should pay someone else to do it, give them a good percentage of the revenue. If I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, I'm going to do it late. I'm going to procrastinate. I'm not going to do my best work. I'm going to overeat while I'm doing it because I need to give myself extra fuel to, you know, for all the energy I'm wasting or reward myself. Everything goes wrong. It's much better in your company or in your project to give someone a good chunk of the revenue who loves doing that part rather than you drag yourself to something you're not enjoying. Mm. I don't believe it should take discipline. I think everybody should be doing the thing that they love doing, and then they can't wait to do it. Right. I think that's perfect. I love that, by the way. Jamie, as we're, as we're wrapping up our time, yeah. how can people find you? Oh, uh, jamiecatto.com. Uh, write to me at jamie at jamiecatto.com. I'm, I'm findable everywhere. I'm just, you know, I'm extremely easy to find. Um, <laughs> I am mostly, you know, around, I travel all the time, but I'm just like, you know, I'm on Facebook and I'm on, I don't Twitter very much. I, I'm not particularly, I can't, I can't shut up long enough to get it into 150 characters. Um, I don't do so much with Twitter, but you know, I'm, I'm very, very easy to find. Jamie at jamiecatho.com is the easiest way uh, to find me. And, and I'm doing a workshop nearly every weekend somewhere. Eventually I'll make my way to America, but it takes a bit more time. I hope so. I hope so. And, and let us know. And let us know because we, you know, we'll, we want to be able to do what we can to support that yeah, in, in any way. And, and once you've been on the Voice of Leadership, just so you know, you do become part of our family. Thank you. And so anything that we can do to help support, we, um, we would love to be able to do. Well, and if you know anyone that wants to, you know, do an American tour and, and, and get some of this stuff over there, you know, I would love to come. I just have never really, you know... I have friends in California, you know, a lot of people have asked me in different places, especially in California and Nevada and Oregon in Colorado, a little bit in New York, um, Boston. I've been asked 
by lots of individuals, but I've never kind of followed it up to, to kind of put it all together and, and make a whole tour happen. And, and so I've never kind of got it together to do that. I would love it if somebody really wanted to do that. I would, you know, I love touring America. I've done it with many bands before. There's nothing more fun than, than going from truck stop to truck stop. <laughs> um, so uh, one day I'd like to come over there if anyone's listening. To that happen, I, I, I'd love to collaborate. Well, cool. Jamie, we can we can talk offline maybe some more about how to make that happen. I also want to ask you to keep us posted on your 15 minutes of friendship vision sure. and project. And let us know how we can support that as well. I think it's a fabulous idea. And, nice, nice. And, and if you get that rocking and rolling, maybe you'll come back on The Voice of Leadership and tell us all about it. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been wonderful chatting with you guys. Great. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you, being Ken. our guest. Yes, we're grateful for this opportunity to yeah. really turn up the volume on and, your voice. And keep on doing what you do. Thanks, guys. God bless. Talk Thank to you. you. Thanks. Bye. Next week, the Voice of Leadership features senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management, Dr. Otto Scharmer. Dr. Scharmer will be speaking to us about leading from the emerging future, going from an ecosystem to an ecosystem. And as we close tonight, thanks to all our leaders for their work in the world and our listeners for supporting us and them. We hope we've inspired something in you today, something that asks, what's your passion? What stirs your soul? What makes you crazy or makes you cry? Where does your heart reach out? And however you answer these questions, what's the action wanting to happen? For the greater good? For something bigger than yourself? Or simply because it's the right thing to do? We end our program tonight with the music of Cindy Campo. Turn up the volume. Good night, Tom. Good night, everyone. Good night, Linda. Good night to our listeners. Have a great week. Do you feel strong? No longer bound. Found your path with both feet on the ground. Found your voice in a world of madness. Loving your life, shining your light. Roll like stones thrown into a rough sea To cause a ripple effect of harmony The gift that whispers deep in our souls It's a symphony of love for all the world to know